Good morning to you all. John, I want to thank you for choosing that last song because really it um, is a pretty perfect summation of what I'm going to preach today. And in particular, the line that struck me was the line of a, a glimpse of glory now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. And that's where we're going today. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth contained in it. Not so that we look and just say for a moment, oh wow, but something that changes us and causes us to serve you as we ought because of what you have done for us. And so we pray that you would bless the next few minutes as we come to your scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're carrying on with our verse-by-verse verse study of 2 Corinthians, and we're at a bit of a minor milestone in that journey because we're actually starting a new chapter, which is chapter 5. <laughs> so please can you turn there now. I am very grateful to the Lord for so many things. One of them is my home, and this especially when it's minus two outside, it's raining, and the wind is howling around the chimney, but I am tucked up in my bed. As I lie there, it seems that I am very secure, but when I think about the recent events in Nelson, I have to remember that my walls and roof can very easily be removed by wind and water. So, where will my security be then? What comes next? How will I survive? Well, those questions will be answered by today's text, so let's jump right in. I'm going to start reading, though, at the end of chapter 4, because we have this artificial break that's created by the insertion of chapter and verse, and it might cause us to forget that what we're looking at today is really part of a much longer argument. So we'll begin in chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now the first matter I'd like to deal with is that when we see the words house and tent, it's easy to think that Paul is writing about a dwelling made of canvas or maybe solid stone walls. And although you can start to read the passage like that, and the idea actually does still hold true, 
When you get a bit further into verse 1 and read the bit about not made with, with hands, well, that idea starts to seriously unravel. And this is because the tent that he is referring to is really our fleshly body. His tent intention, to get the pun there, is to create a contrast in the reader's mind between the impermanence of a skin or canvas dwelling that can be easily rolled up and moved and the solidity and permanence of a place to live in heaven. The New Living Translation version puts it more readably like this. It reads, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Now, why do you think that Paul is pointing to an event that for most of his readers, and hopefully most of us, will be a good while in the future? In a previous life, I was a sales manager in charge of a bunch of sales reps. And in order to inspire these fine folks to higher heights of salesmanship, the company that I worked for had some very generous incentive schemes. And they were linked to how much one sold and how well you collected the money for those sales. But there was a problem with this incentive scheme. However well they were received when they were launched, there was always this matter of time. The most sought after prize was an overseas holiday for a week. All expenses paid for the by, the by the company. Now you can imagine that, what that was like. Well actually you can't because <laughs> living in Zimbabwe made it so difficult to go on an overseas holiday. So this was a massive thing. But it was only awarded annually. And so it was really difficult to, to actually visualize getting on the plane when you were 11 whole months away from that. And this meant that part of my work was to constantly remind my staff, keep your eye on the prize. Tease them about positive glamorous destinations and make sure that they always knew how well they were doing against their targets. Well, it's pretty much the same thing here, actually, except that this particular incentive scheme only pays out at three score and ten. And that can be pretty difficult to hold focus on when things aren't going so well. The Corinthian church has been buffeted by false prophets and personal attacks on Paul's message. They've been through a period of open disobedience as a result, but now they've repented and they're on the right track, but Paul wants to encourage them to stay on the course. So here he is, he's writing to his sales team, reminding them of the company incentive scheme. Don't give up. Things might be terribly hard, but don't lose heart. What seems to be completely unbearable now will, not, will be seen to be trivial when you get to the end. There's this great prize of eternal life in Christ. So he's been going over the benefits of the scheme one by one, and we've been reading about those up till now. If I can carefully extend my metaphor, there's one really important difference in Paul's incentive scheme, and that is certainty. Verse 1 begins, for we know. He doesn't write that we hope, or we think, or we dream, or if we work really hard, but we know a dead certainty. In scripture, there are two Greek words commonly translated as know. This one, Ido, and ginosko. They are different because they show how the knowledge has been gained. Ginosko indicates knowledge gained by experience, the sort of thing like 
I've been there and I've done that and I've got the t-shirt. Ido, on the other hand, refers to intuitive or implanted knowledge. Knowledge that is informed by the certainty of the heart rather than the hope of the head. You know, like you might say, I know I love my children. It's, it's a very deep kind of certainty. And Ido is the word that's being used here. The sense of certainty is reinforced by this little word following if. And the way that it's used in the original writings means that it's a chronological, not a hypothetical if. In other words, the time might be uncertain, but not the fact. It tells us that the question is not if the tent will be taken down or destroyed, but when. It will definitely happen because all of us are going to die. We might ask then if Paul has such certainty of heart to make his claim about an eternal home. Well, how did that hope get there? And why would it be superior to something that he had learned? After all, we humans put a great value on experience and so surely it would make more sense to appeal to that sort of knowing. Well, he's certain because this truth has been revealed to him by divine revelation, along with a great deal of other special knowledge. And we enjoy the fruit of those inspired truths in his writings today. And possibly he's even literally seen what is promised. Later in 2 Corinthians 12, we read of him being caught up in the third heaven. Now, we can't know exactly what that is or what he saw there, because he's sworn to silence, but the inference is that it was profound enough to give him an unusual and unshakable faith in the future. And this is what he wants to pass on to the Corinthians and in turn to all of us here. He wants us to clearly understand that irrespective of even the most terrible of events, including death, the believer truly has nothing to fear. <laughs> in fact, that's even something to be looked forward to because of the way that we will then live. That's a, that's a pretty big idea. So the, the question is, are you packed up and ready to go like Paul? So where are you going to? Well, it says right here, doesn't it? We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know, I'm constantly frustrated by the way that English fails to deliver the nuances of Scripture. And this is why we must constantly go to the Greek. And here I want to make an aside. You know, when I and other preachers here quote from the Greek, don't imagine that we are some kind of super scholar. <laughs> because trust me, we aren't. But the truth is that people who are super scholars have studied this stuff carefully. And it is available to all. And so all of us in our study of the scriptures can go to the Greek and learn a lot more about what we are reading from God's, God's revelation to us. And I want to encourage you to do that. Don't imagine that I'm something special up here. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, the same as the rest of you. Right, back to, to the Greek. Take the word have here. We have a building from God. Now, I think that 
all of us understand the word have does not necessarily mean that we're always going to keep a thing. Go back to the floods and Nelson picture. And there are any number of circumstances that can also neatly remove our haves. And also things wear out and break. But not this time. In the Greek, the word have is echo, and it means to possess, to have. There's nothing exciting there. But the tense used informs us that it is a present and continual possession, not temporary. And so we can see that for those who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, this eternal heavenly home that he's promising here is something that we both already own and also will never be taken away. It will never wear out. And so we can confidently live inside that truth. We might face any number of difficulties and perils, even death. But so what? We already have a building from God waiting, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. As wonderful a prospect as that is, I might have created some theological confusion in your mind because here I am waxing lyrical about eternity in a heavenly home. But on other occasions from the same pulpit, I've also taught that the notion of harps and wings and clouds is rubbish. The reality and promise of Scripture, the truth, is that we will get a new and perfect physical body living on a recreated earth. So, which is right? Harps and wings or new earth and new body? Well, kind of both. <laughs> If you go back to the beginning of the sermon, I said that Paul is using the words tent and house and building here just as word pictures to remind us of the temporary and fragile nature of our present lives compared to the permanent and solid nature of eternal life in Christ. They aren't actual, literal structures. So with this in mind, we can see that rather than creating a contradiction, he's just using these pictures to reinforce the message which is that the believer has a certain and eternal place of refuge. Now, there are some further complications to, its doc to this doctrine, it's true, and we'll have a brief look at those later when they arise from the text. Another question you might have cons concerns this phrase that's here, not with hands. If Paul's talking about bodies both before and after death, well... <laughs> Neither of them are made with hands, so why would it be necessary to mention that? Well, there are three reasons. In the first instance, this confirms that he isn't talking about literal tents or houses, and we've already talked about this. Secondly, these words can also be understood to demonstrate that the construction of the new house is going to be a completely new thing, a new creation, one that isn't part of the present one, that is broken by sin. Thirdly, it contrasts something that is temporary, impure, and incomplete. A thing that's made by human hands with something that is enduring and incorruptible and perfectly finished. Something made by God. In scripture, if you see the phrase made with hands, it's usually connected to idolatry and it implies impurity, none of which will be found in the new creation. Let's move on to verse 2 now. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. But once again, it's helpful to look at the New Living Translation. 
we grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. Earlier I spoke about the difficulties involved in keeping sales reps focused on their targets, even though a very healthy reward awaited them if they excelled. The problem was time. The good feeling of success was too far away to provide motivation for extra effort here and now. And this is a condition that's common to many folk. <laughs> I know that I'm no different. So what Paul has written here is a very powerful word picture for me. He groans, he groans in earnest desire. I don't think there's much trace of any difficulty in grasping the depth of his feeling here. And that's illuminating. Remember that what we're reading here is not some made-up story. It's a truth being explained by a man who has had a first-hand experience of what he speaks. To begin with, there is the matter of Paul's frankly miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus. Added to which is this visit to the third heaven. <laughs> we all want to know what heaven is going to be like. I'd be very surprised if you'd never had that thought. But here we're being told. It's more than marvelous. It's something worth groaning earnestly for. Suffering is, is worth it. Working is worth it. Dying for it is worth it. Let's look at the word groaning in Greek. The root of this word, it means narrow or constricted, as in when one is squeezed or pressed by circumstances. And it describes an inward, unexpressed feeling of sorrow. To sigh or groan is the sense here. And I really like this picture of being squeezed because... For me, it captures the depth of longing. You're not just letting go a little sigh. Oh. But the whole body is tense with emotion, every muscle quivering with the effort of expressing the longing to be at home, at peace with the Lord. There's another sense connected to the sound too, one of deep satisfaction with the present state. When I see this word groaning, it immediately causes me to think of the similar passage in Romans 8, where Paul adds to the believer's groans, those of all creation, who are protesting the bondage of corruption that's been brought about by human sin. Let me read this section to you, because it so well supports what we're talking about here. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So here in Romans is this parallel picture of this great and universal tension. Not just Paul, 
but a whole body of believers. In fact, everything, everywhere, quivering and straining with the need to be reconciled with its Creator and Lord. Can you see that? Do you see that in your mind's eye? Do you get some sense of that? A glimpse of glory now revealed in meager part? Do you see the worth of the prize? Paul has been whipped, imprisoned, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, constantly in danger from nature and man during his travels. He has had his character defiled. A whole nation of Jews stands against him, and yet still he groans with longing for heaven. This is a profound challenge to every believer, to be like Paul. To not look at our feet and where they might go next by our own will, but to look to heaven for its call on our lives, and to be obedient to heed that call in the face of whatever might follow. Well, sublime as that thought might be, we still need to look at verse 3, which is a continuation of the same sentence. So I'll read again, together with verse 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, it turns out that this is quite a tricky text to explain. And it's because for many commentators, it contributes towards a particular view of what happens between a believer's death, at which time they go to be present with the Lord, and the time that the Lord returns, resurrects the dead, and gives believers their glorified, immortal, and incorruptible bodies. And this is known as the intermediate state. And it's the complication I referred to earlier when we were talking about the true condition we will live in when we die. So, what happens to you in the intermediate state? Well, there are three positions. Number one, you have no body at all. Two, you have a temporary body. And three, nobody knows. <laughs> and this is one of the cases where it's probably best to favor that nobody knows. Because scripture makes no definitive statement detailing what happens. And so speculation is both unhelpful and frighteningly prone to error. So I'm not going to go into any further detail about the reasons behind these different views because it does get a whole lot technical and, well, it doesn't add to our conversation today. But I'll just pop in the New Living Translation version so you can see how the arguments might start. It reads, for we will put on heavenly bodies, we will not be spirits without bodies. Yeah. So I think you might see where that would go if theology was your profession. But I do want to cautiously offer my own explanation for this verse. I say cautiously because it's only my own understanding, but I believe it fits very well with verses 1 and 2 in my mind. When I read these two verses together, I am immediately reminded of texts that speak of believers as being clothed in righteousness, which comes from the covering of the blood of Jesus. And this is the only covering or clothing or habitation, whatever you want to call it, that has any worth before God on his judgment seat. Because without that blood shed by the Lord, a person is utterly naked before the wrath of God. They have no covering. Every sin is open and obvious. They have no defense. There's no hiding place possible. 
The only thing that can save a person is to have their sins washed away and forgiven by Jesus' blood. With that in mind, the way that I understand verse 3 is that the clothing Paul is speaking of is so valuable to have in heaven. It would be a very, very poor idea to be caught without it. Because it isn't just a case of being laughed at for poor styling decisions, but a case of nakedness and shame with nowhere to go and nowhere, no way to hide from the eternal consequences of God's wrath. It doesn't have to be like that. If you know, if you're listening to this, and you know that you're one of these naked ones, there's something I really want you to hear. This text reminds me that God deeply loves people. If it wasn't so, why would there be this prize? And he loves you in particular. And he wants to restore you into his family to give you clothes and shelter eternally like we're talking about here. And I, I hope with all my heart that what we have learned today will convince you that there are things truly worth having in heaven so that you will set your sin aside and take Jesus as your Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us that glimpse of glory, that motivation to keep going. Thank you so much that you have loved us so much that you made a way for us to move past our sins and claim that prize, that you provided the prize, that you provided the way to the prize. Oh Lord, I pray that we would hear and we would answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.